you just a few weeks ago and had an opportunity to exhort you from God's Word. This is my opportunity to do that. We get that about once every couple of years or so. I think the last time that, that I um, preached was Father's Day a couple of years ago. Oh, the little lapel mic. Let's get that back here. Got to start over. I think it's okay going here. Is that good? Okay. All right. So um, I, did, I did preach a couple of uh, years ago, and it, it's always a, a, a tremendous honor and privilege for me to do that. There's all these things attached to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my watch off. And by the way, you know what it means when a pastor takes his watch off before he begins to preach? Nothing. It means nothing. Right? And I just told you I'm not even a pastor. I'm a ruling elder. So, you know, what does it mean when a ruling elder takes his watch off before he has to stand up? It means nothing. In fact, I know that we have our, our services have been going a little short, so I actually have a little bit of extra time. Um, and I am a little bit hot up here, a little bit nervous, and can get excited a little bit, maybe. And, and, and maybe I'm just taking my watch off so I don't fly off and hit Pastor Dave over here. Um, and he's safely outside the, you know, the area of impact here. And, and, and Dave, you also have an important role here today. You're going to be my Ed McMahon, you know, the guy just out of scene that chuckles at all my jokes and, and says amen when it's appropriate and so on. So, no, good. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Good job. You're doing great work over there. All right. Um, well, today's passage is uh, Mark 14, verses uh, 27 to 42. Last week, Dr. Dave preached on verses 1 through 11, and then there's a gap there. And if you recall, back in, uh, in, in April, um, in, in the week leading up to uh, Palm Sunday, Frank Wong preached on verses 26 through, through uh, I'm sorry, through uh, 12 through 26, um, when he was um, teaching then about the Passover meal and uh, about the establishment of the Lord's Supper. And so... We're picking up today with that uh, gap in mind in, in verse 27 through 42, and uh, it's, 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 it's going to be a challenging passage. Um, open your Bibles, if you would, to, uh, to Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 42, and, and it's going to be a challenge to us in a number of ways. It's, it's a challenge in what it says about the apostles, because in their weakness and in their fear, uh, we see our own weakness and fear, but today's passage is also going to be jarring in what it teaches about Jesus. Throughout the New Testament, we're constantly confronted with Jesus' otherness, his holiness, uh, his righteousness, his, him, him being God. And today we're going to see something uh, new, perhaps, or, or at least uncommon, in that um, we see an un, unwavering view of God's humanity in Christ, his human nature. And we're going to see ourselves in his grieving. Now, I, I, I give a lot of briefings, I, a lot of PowerPoint slides, and, and write a lot of point papers and those kinds of things as I support the government. And one of the things that we typically do is give the bottom line up front, the bluff, okay? And, and so today, I'm going to do that as well, just so you can be listening actively and hearing what the main point is. But the main point here is if we're honest, if we really uh, admit to ourselves um, the truth, we're, we're actually quite weak and oftentimes uh, cowardly um, as Christians. Uh, we're unwilling oftentimes to associate ourselves with Christianity. Uh, it's hard to do that in today's culture. Um, but we have something as Christians, the disciples in our passage did not yet have, and that's the Holy Spirit, and that makes all the difference. And so I want you to pay attention to that, that piece as well. So today we return to the Mount of Olives and enter uh, the quiet and secluded Garden of Gethsemane. There the humanity of Jesus revealed it with astonishing fidelity. <clears throat> One commentator said of this passage we see jesus as 
anything but above temptation. He writes, so far, uh, he says, so far from sailing serenely through his trials like some superior being unconcerned with this world. Again, we're, we're going to see him grieving. We're going to see him uh, uh, anguishing over what's facing him, and that's very human. But before we read the text, I just want to point out uh, just just the fact that it's really inconceivable that the early church uh, could or would contrive or make up uh, a story like this one about Jesus. Now, the details of this account point to the divine inspiration and the meticulous care with which the Holy Spirit presided over the human authorship of the scripture. You see, God in, ensured the details about the deeply flawed and faithless disciples were recorded and available forever. If the Gospels were a fictional story written autobiographically by the apostles, the writers would surely not included their own cowardly actions. They would have put themselves in a better light and perhaps made themselves appear more heroic or at least more loyal to Jesus. If today's story were made up, it's very unlikely Mark would have recorded what many would regard as embarrassing details about Jesus' distress. A writer of a fictional story would not have said that the hero of the Gospels, the God-man Jesus, could be tempted to avoid his mission. In fact, many of the details of Jesus' life can be viewed by some people as being embarrassing. And we're told in the Bible about his dishonorable birth to a poor unwed couple. In a dirty manger, we read about how he was rejected, ridiculed, humiliated, spat upon, tortured, executed. Read about how all of his disciples fell away, hid in an upper room, and refused to believe that he had been resurrected. We read about how women had been the first, uh, had been more courageous than the men, more honoring towards their rabbi, and how they had the honor to be the first to see the risen Jesus. So Jesus hung out with the wrong people, touched the wrong people, healed the wrong people, did not rescue the Jews from their Roman overlords. None of the Gospels put the, the apostles in even the dimmest of good lights. Disciples come off as uneducated, faithless dimwits, selfish and prideful cowards, coattail riders who had no idea what was really happening. It's extremely unlikely that the gospel writers would band together to fabricate a story which exposes their utter commonness and shameful, shameful behavior. It's even more unlikely that they would cast the frail hero of the story, Jesus, in such an unflattering light. And so as we we look at the, this passage today. I think, as I said, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna see ourselves in, in the behavior of the disciples. Perhaps we're going to see this, this this human side of Jesus and all of that, all of that account, and all of what we read in the, in the Gospels. So much of the Bible is just it's just too hard to imagine people would make that up if they were making up some new religion. And I think that it's an important thing for us to remember. In fact, I just I want to just um, do a brief plug here for the Sunday school that's coming up uh, this this fall. God willing. We'll be able to resume Sunday school soon, and here in the auditorium in the front section, we're going to do a, a, a Sunday school entitled The Story of the Bible, Origins and Objective, uh, uh, Objections. And so what we're going to do there is look at the Bible and say, you know, is it historical? Why do we have the books that we have? Who were these people that wrote it? And so on. Is it, is it uh, did the mir miracles happen? Is it historically reliable? All those kinds of things, and, and, I, and I hope you will join us for that. So today, our, our passage is a true account, an unlikely but a true account, one that speaks volumes about our own weakness and our desire for self-preservation. We can, we can relate to how easy it is to fear tangible, in-person man, rather than maintain allegiance to our invisible Savior, especially when the pressure is on. 
Today's passage gives us a profound view of Christ's humanity. We see our God-man experience severe distress over an unimaginably arduous ordeal he knew was coming. It's both honest and ugly, and we can learn a lot about ourselves and about our willing and obedient Savior. Let's pray. Gracious, loving, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, God, we thank you for this uh, passage this morning, and I, I pray, Lord, as we open it, that your heart would speak to our heart, and that my, my own frailness, my own timidity, and my own uh, sinfulness would not get in the way of the message that you would have given to your church this morning. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, for enabling us to understand your word, for, for our Heavenly Father who's given us that word, and I pray, Lord, that it would impact us today for your glory. let's read from Mark 14 verses 26 to 31. I'm going to break it up a bit. Um, This first section is verses 26 through 31. And I'd like you to pay attention carefully. This is God's word and you need it. I need it. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to them, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. They all said the same. Again, for context, we come to this passage after studying the previous section on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, communion. And here at Potomac Hills, we typically celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month. We don't just do this as a memorial to remember what Christ did for us on the cross and offering his body and his blood as a payment for our sins. We celebrate the Lord's Supper because as believers, we are encouraged, strengthened, and somehow spiritually nourished by God when we come together as a church individually examining ourselves, personally and corporately confessing our sins and our need for mercy and grace, repent of our numerous and frequent sins, and partake of the elements with thanksgiving in our hearts. It's good for us to do that. We need that. It's one of the reasons why there is a church for us to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. And it will be a joyous occasion when it's safe for us to resume the Lord's Supper here at Potomac Hills, and I pray that happens soon. So first, may I say, I just, I love the detail of verse 26. We read there that they concluded their Passover meal in the upper room with a hymn and headed out towards the Mount of Olives. Intimate details like this uh, speak of an uh, an eyewitness personal account, something that was historically uh, real and that people actually experienced. I imagine the group of them following Jesus out into the cold night uh, after their meal, uh, about midnight their time. And Judas Iscariot has already left to do what he'd said he, he, what he'd planned to do. And we'll come back to him before the end uh, today. Jesus and the 11 others walked along, crossed the Kidron Valley, ascended the hill on the other side called the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane lay. Now, as a Marine, I, I deployed aboard ship and went all over Africa and, and the Middle East. And, and, and uh, we had the privilege of visiting Israel and the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and the places in this passage are actually not all that far from each other. And when I was there and seeing them in person, I was kind of struck by the, the scale of, of, uh, of the scene. 
Uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane, you can look across the Kidron Valley, uh, which is today strewn with the stone burial sites of thousands of Jewish families, and see Old Jerusalem, part of the remaining wall and um, the, the gold dome of the Islamic Temple Mount, which now stands on the very spot where the Jewish Temple of Jesus' time stood. Uh, so with that setting in, in mind and the cool, dark surroundings that they must have been in, we read these next verses, 27 and 28. Speaking to the 11, Jesus says this. He says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus says, shockingly, uh, that they will all fall away. And then he quotes Zechariah. 13.7, referring to himself as the shepherd and his disciples as the sheep. The reference to Zechariah 13 probably refers and has, uh, has in view perhaps the, all of the, the whole Jewish nation, which will be soon scattered about 30 years later when in 70 AD the Romans uh, destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. Um, but, but here, this, this reference also is pointing to Jesus as being the one who stands next to or stands by the Father. That's, that's what it says in Zechariah 13, that, that, that the per one that stands next to God is the shepherd. And in, here in this context, the, the sheep are the disciples, and, and as we've read, they're, they're all going to fall away. Now keep in mind, these same disciples have been with Jesus almost continuously for about three years. They've been with him in, in, night and day in the countryside, in the city. Uh, they've, they've witnessed miracles. They've received his careful personal instruction. They've walked along with him just a few days before in the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, less, less than a week ago. Uh, they, were, they were all there when Peter made his famous declaration and recognized Jesus as the Christ, son of the living God. In short, they, they appear to have every reason to have the confidence and the security uh, and, and feel the safety of, of being with God and not abandon uh, Jesus, and yet they all fall away. But uh, it strikes me, before we're too hard on the disciples, we need to be uh, realistic at this point, right? Uh, they're not soldiers. They're, they're common laborers. Most, Im most importantly, at this point, they don't have the Holy Spirit. They were carnal, fleshly, and as such, they lacked the power, the faith, the resolve, the courage, the strength, all those things that we as Christians are empowered with, they didn't have. And, and, and essentially, all they were left to be is selfishly concerned with their own safety. And we'll get back to that, but first we need to talk about Peter a little bit more. Uh, impetuous, impulsive Peter, right? Uh, he's always the guy who springs forward with something to say. I picture him kind of like Arnold Horshack. Anybody, does that ring a bell to anybody, Arnold Horshack? Arnold Horshack was uh, from a TV show in the 70s called, with John Travolta called uh, Welcome Back, Carter. Um, and I'll spare you my Horshack imitation. Uh, but uh, but uh, for those of you who are too young for that show, Arnold was the guy in the New York City High School uh, that, uh, that always wanted to answer every question his teacher asked, Mr. Carter. Uh, he wanted to be the first one called on, and he invariably had the wrong answer. He said it in the wrong way and was quickly embarrassed by the class. Maybe you know some Arnolds out there from your time in the classroom. Well, Peter is the same way. And here, once again, well-meaning, he climbs over his classmates, sticks his foot in his mouth, and begins to say things that uh, are, are clearly, from hindsight, uh, uh, inappropriate. Now, I, I picture Peter, like Arnold, gesturing insistently with both arms, right, pointing at the others and saying, if, if, even if all those other guys fall, 
you know, beating his chest and saying, I won't leave you. I'll, I'll never leave you. I'll stick by you. Uh, following Peter's vehement denial in verse 29, we immediately get Jesus' terse and, and, and quick, very, very clear response. He's, he uses a double emphatic kind of instru- uh, construction here. He says, amen, which is in the Greek. Uh, what, we pr- what we say is amen as a way to end our, our, uh, our prayers. And it means truly. So when we say amen, we're saying truly. And so Jesus says, truly, this very night. So he's, he's saying, this is going to happen to you. Uh, you know, there's no doubt that you will deny Jesus. Not once, but three times. And all this will happen in just the next few hours before the rooster crows twice. Notice also that Jesus makes it devastatingly clear that Peter's abandonment of Jesus is representative of the rest of them. And he says that they will all fall away. Now the prediction of betrayal is given twice to Peter and the others. Remember we heard in the previous section during Easter, during that teaching on uh, Lord's Supper, um, you know, that very night during the Passover meal in the upper room, Jesus had already said that one of them would betray him. You know that to be Judas. And here in the garden, only a few hours later, Jesus predicts that all of them would fall away. And the rooster's crow even would, be, uh, would come to further warn Peter about his own imminent betrayal. And, and yet he abandons Christ. He denies him. So let's pause just briefly to consider an important question here. And these are the kinds of things that I wonder about as I, as I read scripture. Uh, is Peter a robot? Know, is he is he somehow forced because God made a prediction, God made a prophecy about what he was going to do? Did he have a choice in the matter? Did he have to do what he did? Well, no. God allows Peter to choose sin. Peter is responsible for sin. Uh, that is ultimately part of God's predetermined plan. But what about Judas? Right. So, in, in back in you know hundreds of years before Judas was ever born, we read in Psalm forty-one that that he was going to betray Christ. That he. he that, that that was going to happen. So is Judas Iscariot some sort of robot controlled by God and made to sin? No, and, and neither are we, right? God doesn't tempt anyone. He doesn't allow anyone to sin. He doesn't cause anyone to sin. When we sin, it's because we love something more than we love God. And, and sadly, you know, in many ways, we sin because we like to sin. We sin because we're sinners and we're too, too often not willing to obey and to submit to God. We don't want to be ruled, and sometimes God gives us what our sinful de- sinfulness desires because in ways we cannot comprehend, his larger plan takes into account our stubbornness and our rebellion. His sovereign plan is for his glory and his ultimate good, our good. And somehow our sinful choices are made part of this magnificent tapestry. Somehow he's making something beautiful out of our mess. And I have a hard time accepting that, honestly. Sometimes it's, uh, it's difficult to do that, especially as we look around the world and we see so much sin. Um, and in this case, well, you know, what's hard to accept is even hard to understand, but it's true. God is sovereign, and we are responsible for our actions. No one is forced by God to sin. So back to impetuous Peter. So Peter speaks for all the disciples after Jesus has called all of them out and made this grim prediction about Peter in front of his peers. And again, we, I picture Peter motioning forcefully, right? Beating his chest, pointing at everybody else, uh, distancing himself from everybody. 
in uh, repudiating Jesus for his dire prediction. In verse 31, he says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. They all said the same. So in the still and safety of the garden, in the quiet and peace of their private huddle with their rabbi, Peter pleads his allegiance, his unassailable loyalty to Jesus, his willingness to die instead of abandoning him. And it occurs to me, I'm a pretty eager guy. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. I suspect many of you feel the same also. And I can say with confidence I'd rather die than betray Christ. I feel confident that I would not betray Christ. But then... Reality kind of kicks in, right? I, I, I examine myself, I think about that kind of thing, and, and I remember the truth. I venture uh, to say that none of us, by the grace of God, have been challenged in ways that our Christian faith, our identification as believers, has put our lives genuinely in peril. But if we're honest, almost daily, we're faced with small and large decisions that reveal where our loyalties lay. Almost daily, we're faced with choices where... We either stand by Christ or give in and abandon him. When no one's looking, when no one will ever know, in the solitude of our hidden thoughts, we make decisions and take actions that demonstrate whether we trust God to take care of us. We are often faced with choices in front of others, maybe among our family or our friends or our roommates, maybe in front of those we work among, where we are what, doing what Christ would have us do, would be to go against convention, to swim against the stream, to uh, do what's unpopular or unholy. God willing, we'll never have to make the choice to stand with Christ and defend our faith versus facing real physical danger, maybe even death. Although God may have that plan for us, maybe even in our own generation. Today, even today, many people around the world outside of Loudoun County face persecution and death every day for being disciples of Christ. And we here in America have no promise from scriptures uh, saying that we're going to be protected or isolated or immune from those dangers. So even if we don't face the immediate perils which face the disciples for being followers of Christ, we are daily faced with the choice of being recognized and being different from the world, being unconventional, being nonconformist. The choice to follow Christ in high school or college, at work, or among our non-believing family members, close friends, neighbors, really, really hard, isn't it? Hey, it's hard to be a Christian in today's culture. It's hard to stick out uh, and be an out-of-the-closet Christian, I like to say. Today, our culture here in Loudoun County and across our country, really around the world, continually argues against nearly every aspect of our Christian faith. Moral truths that were widely held in our culture for generations have been abandoned. Immoral behaviors once recognized as wrong have been normalized over and over and over by the loudest voices in our lives until they've been accepted as good by non-Christians and Christians alike in every community throughout our country. Speaking up and defending the truth and disagreeing with the culture and its newly acquired norms is now regarded, sadly, by many as hatred. It's as if we cannot disagree with non-believers without being accused of hatred. I'm just I'm here to say, believers, we can disagree and offer the truth in love without hating those who disagree with us. Remembering that if it were not for Christ, if it were not for the Holy Spirit in us, if it were not for the word which we are empowered to understand and believe, 
who would agree with the world? Now let's make it up moral. And we would probably stand in opposition to it. Christians don't need to hate those we disagree with. We don't even need to act in a way that communicates hatred towards those with which we disagree. In fact, we are commanded to hate no one. Commanded to hate no one. We need to offer unbelieving people around, around us the truth with the same grace and patience we did not deserve when it was shared with us. But of course, all of this is really hard to do, isn't it? It's so easy to cut and run, just like Peter and the rest of the apostles did in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it can be really, really awkward, even scary to be associated with Jesus. It's certainly true that Peter and the disciples could not find the strength in themselves to stand by Christ when it got tough. At least not until they were given the Holy Spirit. Let's remember, after being empowered by the Spirit at Pentecost, these same men were able to live out supernatural faith and unwavering loyalty to truth about Jesus. The Holy Spirit turned these 11 cowards into true superheroes of the faith, all of which, the tradition tells us, possible exception of John, endured horrific torture, death, and death with, without denying Christ. Again, just pause and think about that for a moment. If this were a made-up story, if they just fabricated this, this lie about some poor guy in Galilee and that, that, that died and, and never resurrected, and, and then, then they're being tortured and, and uh, told to deny Christ, they, they certainly would have done that if it were made up. So friends, as a, as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus today, you have the same spirit in you that transformed Peter and the other apostles into giants of the faith. In this life, you and I will continue to struggle with temptation and sin. We'll continue to struggle with doubt and with fear. We'll continue to be tempted to disown Christ when pressed. But unlike the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane that fateful night, we have the power in us to stand firm with Christ. Let's see what happens next in our passage. And thank another example of how frail and human the disciples were, but we're also going to get an unwavering look at Jesus and his humanity working alongside his divinity. So let's continue reading verse 32 through 40 in Mark chapter 14. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Have you not watched one hour? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let's, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 
here again, we have a place where Jesus often spent with his disciples to teach and teach them privately and to pray. In the middle of the night, they had no doubt after what had no doubt, no doubt been a long day. Jesus tells the group to sit down so he can move away with Peter, James, and John, but pray privately. Now, paradoxically, and by that I mean it's just hard for us really to get our mind around uh, what we're about to see, it seems to argue against logic or paradox. Jesus Christ, who is God, took on himself, took upon himself the likeness of man. He became flesh. We call that the incarnation. And he took on a human nature. Jesus was and is 100% God. And in the incarnation, he also became 100% man. Somehow in the, as if somehow in the incarnation, one plus one equals one. That's what I mean by it being a paradox. We know from scripture that he did not give up his divinity when he took on flesh. In other words, it's not, it's, it wasn't somehow less God when he, when he became man. But it's also true that he's not somehow less human than we are. Perfect, but not less human. Again, this is a paradox. We cannot work it out in our minds. But God's word also tells us that his incarnation, that his humanity did not mingle or become confused with his divinity. They didn't somehow lessen each other or confuse each other. They weren't in conflict or disunity. It was perfectly God and perfectly man, and, and, and that somehow works, right? But what we have today on display is, is in this passage is a really raw and unfiltered view of his humanity in operation alongside the foreknowledge which came from his divinity. Let's look at it. You see, Jesus in his omniscience understood completely what was happening. He knew exactly what faced him. He knew the Father's plan. He knew why he was there. He knew why he came. And these events in the Garden of Gethsemane are happening around midnight on the, on the Thursday of the Passion Week. Tomorrow for them, tomorrow for Jesus, was what we call today Good Friday. Good in that that was the day that our sins were paid for. That access to the Father, that the veil of the temple was torn, and we now have unfettered access personally with the God of the universe, and that's really, really good. Our, having our, our sins forgiven is, an, is, is, is beyond good, right? So it's Good Friday for us, but in, in, in his humanity, as Jesus looked forward to tomorrow, uh, this is at night, right? The next day, he, he undoubtedly understood that he would be tried, beaten, crucified, suffer immeasurably die and be buried, abandoned by his best friends. Now more than that, Jesus understood as the second person of the Trinity who had enjoyed perfect fellowship, unity and love with the Father and the Spirit would be forsaken by God, would become our sin and be justly forsaken, turned away from by those with whom he had been perfectly unified since before there was time. Jesus knew that was going to happen that perfect relationship, his, the Father and the Spirit would look away, turn away from Christ as he's hung there on the cross, embodying, embodying as the embodiment of our sin. Jesus in his divinity knew the wrath, the spiritual and physical agony that, he was, that was awaiting him just hours away. Jesus in his humanity grieved deeply for what lay ahead. His anguish and his sorrow were crushing him. He physically staggered under their weight. So powerful was his distress and sorrow that it threatened to extinguish his life. Verse 34, Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. 
Our Savior stumbles a few feet away and he falls to the ground. In his humanity, he pleads three times with the Father, asking for another way. He says in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will. He submits that all things are possible for the Father. He acknowledges that the Father could in fact do something. It was within the Father's ability to remove the cup. Now, uh, in the Old Testament, a cup was a, a symbol, a, a metaphor for both the blessing and mercy of God and God's wrath. Here, obviously, he's talking about the cup of his Father's wrath. And Jesus' humanity sincerely, sincerely desired that there would be another way for God's justice, wrath, and mercy to be satisfied for the salvation of his elect. We can understand that, right? If we knew that was happening to us, we would want another way. But Jesus humbly submits to the Father's will and resolves to obey. Jesus in his humanity is crushed by sorrow and fearful of the next day's excruciating events, but his divinity obeys willingly, sacrificially, to continue in the Father's plan. As we're being shown Christ's humanity operating alongside his divinity, we're also reminded of the frailty of Jesus' followers, thus our own frailty. Jesus had been alone, prostrate on the ground, for only a few feet away among the olive trees for nearly an hour. He returns to find Peter, James, and John asleep in the orchard, and he rouses them awake, saying in verse 37, Simon, are you asleep? Did you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. My wife and I uh, pray together every night as we go to bed, and we alternate who prays and who makes the request. When we were first married, we read through the, the uh, one-year Bible a couple times, and uh, I read that first January 1st, and, and she prayed, and so she prays on the odd days, and, and the next day she read, and I, and I prayed, so I pray on the even days. And I, I got to tell you, more than a few times, and we've been doing that incidentally for 27 years now by the grace of God. And more than a few times, as we close our eyes to pray, one of us nods off and never and, when, and doesn't answer with uh, with the amen at the end, the it, the it is true or truly type that we talked about, right? And and sadly, uh, more than a few times, lying there in the dark, I've even fallen asleep while praying aloud, right? You know, and some somewhere in the middle of my prayer, I can you know kind of hit the exit ramp off into you know absurdity, and some weird things start coming out of my mouth and elbows me and wakes me up and I somehow regain my composure ask where I left off and, and pray and try to resume praying um, but so, so, you know so I, I can I can uh, identify with these these disciples falling asleep it, 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 it's uh, been a long day for them uh, it, they just had a big deal um, it's dark it's quiet it's cold uh, you know the trees are swaying in the wind Right, I mean, like all the recipes for falling fast asleep, really quick, and, and my eyes would have been empty for sure. Um, you know, but Jesus says something uh, next that I think we can all identify with, right? Uh, he doesn't just tell them to wake up, but he, he says something next that I think is really tr true, and I think we all understand that it's true. He says, "The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak." Now we're often eager; we want to do what's right and not do what's wrong, and we know the difference, and we want to obey at least we we know we ought to want to obey right 
Um, but when it comes to the, the doing part, our flesh is weak. And we're easily tempted, easily distracted from the truth pulled aside from us through our life. The problem is, our flesh finds the simple stuff easy. But not spiritual stuff really hard. And that's a sad truth. I'm not going to ask for an amen, because I, cause I know you'll agree with me. But let's, let's read what Paul, the apostle and writer of much of the New Testament, says in Romans 7. He says uh, in Romans 7, 18 through 21, For I know nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Sound familiar? Does that sound truthful of yourself often? Continuing in verse 19, Paul says, For I, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what keeps me, what, what, what I keep on doing. I know if I do what I do not want, it's, not, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close to me. And, and honestly, you know, that's both true and discouraging to read, isn't it? But I'm not going to leave you on that discouraging note. We'll come back to what Paul says in chapter 8 here before we're done. But back in uh, Mark 14, after pleading three times with the Father to remove the cup and coming back to find Peter, James, and John asleep the third time, Jesus says this in verse 41. He says, it is enough. The hour has come. Jesus essentially is saying to the three groggy men, this, that's it. We're done here. Get up. He points out something that has always struck me in this irony. He says, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Just amazing that the, the, the all-powerful God and creator of the universe is betrayed into the hands of those he, he hates, sinful men. When Jesus says, rise, let us be going, let's... Uh, he says, rise, let us be going and see my betrayers at hand. He was saying, as one commentator put it, that he knew a cup of dreadful suffering was awaiting him. And that as it was the Father's will, he was completely willing to drink it. So what does that all this mean to us practically? Let's get to some application here. We've, we've taken a brief dive into the deep end of the theological pool, if you will, as we discuss Christ's humanity and his divinity in harmonious operation together. But practically speaking, what does that matter? We saw ourselves in the disciples and admit, perhaps reluctantly, that we were like them. In the daily denials of Christ that we make in our thoughts, our choices, our actions, our words. Because our sinfulness, our willingness to follow Christ feels like it's just no match for the frailty of our human flesh. But you might be saying, well, what does that matter? We're big sinners. Got it. Check. I knew that one. What else do you have to say to me? Plenty. There's plenty here in this passage to discourage us as we consider just how often we're like the disciples in their faithlessness. But let's go back to Paul for a moment in chapter 8. Keeping in mind that Paul just finished talking about this law, this battle between our flesh and our desire to obey his spirit and to do what's good. That instead of despairing as a believer who struggles with sin, and often fails to obey, Paul writes this in Romans 8, 1 through 4. He says, there is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's really important to understand what it means to be in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order, get this, if you're feeling a little drowsy right now, like the disciples, listen to this right here. This is, this is the, I'm taking it home right here, right? This is verse 4 in chapter 8. Why did Jesus do all that? Why did he um, take on the incarnation and suffer and die for us? Here it is, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what does all that mean? Why does it matter? Believers, there is now no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. God sent his innocent, perfect God-man son to put on your sin, to put on my sin, to become sin and suffer and die in your place, in my place, so that the cup of his wrath could be poured out on Jesus and justice could be served, justice could be satisfied. While graciously sparing you and sparing me from what we are we in our stubborn sinfulness deserve. Because Christ, there is grace and mercy for you if you trust in him. No matter what you've done, no matter what you will do, because of Christ, because of what he has done, you can trust in him and no condemnation for you. Don't miss that. Believe it, trust it. In fact, trust in that alone to save you because nothing else will. Believe that and you will be completely forgiven, saved. You will be given the Holy Spirit. You will be empowered and enabled in a way the disciples in our passage had not yet been empowered to wage war against your fleshly desires, to swim against the stream, to resist the culture, to find forgiveness when you're weak, to give forgiveness when it's not deserved, and knowing beyond a doubt that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in you. Because Christ said to his Abba Father, his will be done for you and all who would ever believe. Amen. It's true. All right, so next I'm going to ask you to take a few moments to, to privately thank God for taking the cup of wrath that you deserve so that you could receive by grace the acceptance that only he deserves. Now, if, if this message of Jesus paying for your sins on the cross is new to you this morning. If you've heard it a million times before, but you've never believed it, but you believe it for the first time today, praise God. Tell somebody. Tell someone so we can help you grow as a new believer and encourage you in your new journey. Now, if, if perhaps you've believed a long time ago, but you're kind of here mechanically and you're just kind of going through the motions, or maybe you've wandered away and you happen to be listening to the sermon, um, you know, uh, and, and today is the day that you've decided to, to return and, and uh, follow Christ. Praise God. Again, tell, tell somebody. But if all this about Jesus still seems like a man-made story, a fictional account, an irrelevant man from more than 2,000 years ago, I pray that you would consider the unlikeliness of the ugliness we read about today. All those unflattering details speak of a true account preserved faithfully for 2,000 years to confront your doubts, to tell you what you need to believe to be saved. I pray today that God would do just that and allow you to understand and believe. So consider these things and pray for a few moments privately.
Gracious Heavenly Father, creator of the universe, Lord of our world, Savior of sinners, thank you, God, for your mercy, for your grace, for your Holy Spirit who is in us and empowers us to boldly follow you when we're afraid. Pray, Lord, that uh, you would encourage us to be out of the closet Christians this week and every week, Father, and to be committed to obey you and to follow you even when it's unpopular to say the things uh, that are hard to say and to say them with love to a world that doesn't know you thank you God for your grace we ask this in your name thank you God amen amen with that message in mind and the love that we have of our Savior Jesus Christ, what drives and fuels us. What a friend. I hear your benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. This is from Paul. But he, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am, con I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong.